Welcome to the Addy Hour, where we talk brain science, mental health, faith, culture, and social justice. Having attended one of Dr. Addy's town halls, I can tell you that it's vital information for anyone living in America right now. It was the first time in a very, very long time where I felt like all of me could show up, each parts of my identity. I'm your host, Dr. Nee Addy. My friend, Dr. Nee Addy, is such a unique person who is both scientifically astute, understands the human soul and the mind. At the same time, he has compassion and empathy for the masses. He's been nothing but a blessing to my congregations and my friends. It was the first time I felt like it was safe to talk about issues that are usually not talked about, like mental health and faith and wrestling with your identity. By the end, I walked out feeling so much more validated and hopeful. Welcome back to another episode of the Addy Hour. As always, it's my pleasure to be here with all of you as listeners and have continued to really be encouraged by all of the feedback that you all have been sending in. So today I'm really excited to continue on our theme on so many different levels. This is really a pinnacle in a sense because we're going to integrate across many of the different things that we're really passionate about here on the Addy Hour. And today I'm honored to be able to welcome Dr. Stephanie Pinder Amaker for a conversation about diversity, equity, inclusion, and mental health on campuses and in society. So obviously that's a very encompassing title, but I think as you all will hear, this is very appropriate for the work that she does. So just to give her a brief introduction, uh, Dr. Pinder Amaker is McLean Hospital's inaugural Chief Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Officer. She is the founding director of McLean's College Mental Health Program. She's an assistant professor of psychology at Harvard Medical School, and she consults, she's a consulting psychologist for the Boston Celtics. So many different roles, as you can hear, and we will also touch on the whole aspect of balancing and juggling in this conversation as well. Partially selfishly, because I get that question a lot too, and it's always helpful to hear others talk through that aspect of their journey. Um, but in terms of, again, the introduction to Dr. Pinder Amaker, she is someone who is guided by the models of cultural humility and shared responsibility, and she's passionate about moving organizations beyond diversity by the numbers towards sustainable inclusivity and promoting culturally responsive mental health approaches. She's consulted for dozens of universities um, and secondary schools, also sport teams and nonprofits to really develop interventions at the intersection of sociocultural identity and mental health. Her new book, Did That Just Happen? Beyond Diversity, Creating Inclusive and Sustainable Organizations, has been selected as a community reads choice by colleges and corporations, and has also been nominated for several national awards. And that's a book we'll be talking about today as well. Along with her co-author, Dr. Lauren Wadsworth, she actually serves, of course, um, on several advisory boards as well to several different organizations that are committed to social justice and health equity. I should also mention that we share a couple of different alma maters as well. Uh, Dr. Pinder Amaker graduated from Duke University with her BS, then went on to do a doctorate in psychology from Vanderbilt University, and then did pre-doctoral and post-doctoral fellowships at the Yale School of Medicine and at Duke Medical School, respectively. Um, so someone that I have uh, some some mutual uh, background with, so to speak, and it's my pleasure and honor to be able to welcome her here to the podcast today. Thank you so much. It is my pleasure and my honor to be here with you 
at the Addy Hour. Wonderful. And just want to say where to be healthy and whole, one must approach things holistically. Mm. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, you for that. Of course. <laughs> you're you're in the right place. Because even I mean, obviously that's in in our essence, but even just hearing you speak that is so just encouraging to, as I can tell that it resonates with you as well. So definitely looking forward to be able to have this conversation. And I've really appreciated, you know, the ways that we've been able to connect over the past couple of years, even before we start this podcast and just the insights that I've been able to glean from your work. Um, and so in, in some ways, this is full circle for me to be able to introduce you to our listeners as well. So appreciate you being here. Thank you. Thank you. And of course, as you know, and as my listeners know, I always just like to start with a check-in, especially with everything that we're continuing to navigate as a society. Um, in some ways, it feels like because things are so heavy and challenging, it's, it's almost surreal in a sense that just talking to different people, it seems like some people are really weighed down by it. Some people are trying not to pay attention to it as much because it's too much. Some people are kind of in between those two. So I would just be curious to hear, especially in the work that you do, how you've just been navigating through life on a daily basis at this point, as you try to balance what you do with your work and then just navigating everything that so many of us are experiencing in society? Such a good question. Thank you for checking in on that. Um, doing pretty well right now. Um, certainly better, I think, now than this time a year ago mm. and better than the year before that mm. at this time. So I feel like trending in the right direction mm. and, and that's that's important. As you mentioned, uh, it's been an extremely demanding time to be in both the fields of mental health service delivery, uh, as well as um, promoting diversity, equity, inclusion, mm -hmm. and belonging sort of across the board. So I um, feel like I've learned a lot in the past few years uh, and really had to put into practice mm -hmm. um, like new strategies for maintaining balance uh, to keep, keep it all going in the right direction. Yeah. That makes so sense. a work in progress. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's a, that's a helpful answer in so many ways to even know that someone like you in your position who is practicing it for others and trying to instill those practices and others still working through that yourself too. Uh, would you be willing to share what some of those new practices have been for you personally? Yeah, sure. Um, one, Interestingly enough, we started a new practice uh, with our staff meetings. Mm -hmm. uh, before we jump into the agenda, we actually have a check-in, mm. like a personal check-in. Uh, and I can't take credit for that. It was like another staff member who said, this would be really important for us mm. to do right now. Uh, and so um, that's been helpful. A, a few things that I practiced uh, that became really important to me during the height of uh, the initial like surge of the mm -hmm. pandemic was, I guess, like to say it like plainly, to begin practicing what I preach, mm -hmm. you know, as a mental health provider, I do so much speaking and talking and teaching about self-care, but really had to push myself to put those practices uh, into place and maintain them for mm -hmm. myself uh, and to hold myself accountable uh, for that. One of the practices that I started doing, I do a lot of um, talking and speaking about resilience, for example. And so I created for teaching it this mnemonic for remembering some of the evidence-based components that promote resiliency. So 
I'm still working on this. It's hard to say verbally, but the way that I see it in my mind is I think about like a title, resilience, and then the number six slash S. So resilience, success, okay? Mm -hmm. um, but the six S's, that's how I remember the components. And what I do for myself is do like a scan of those areas to oh. think about how I'm doing across those areas. And if I'm feeling sort of unmoored or off balance or out mm -hmm. of sorts, then I do that scan across those six areas to see you know, where I might be letting myself down. And it's something that I've been, like like I said, practicing and teaching for years, but yeah. um, had to really begin implementing it for myself. Do you want to know yeah. what the successes are? Yeah, no, I'm okay. very curious. <laughs> <laughs> so um, structure, uh, which I don't typically have a challenge with that, but a lot of people did have mm -hmm. a challenge with maintaining yeah. structure during the pandemic. Um, so structure, self-care, which is huge, and spirituality. Those are the first three S's. Mm -hmm. And then the last three are sense of purpose, sense of belonging, and sense of humor. So I'll sort of do a personal scan of those areas um, to sort of figure out what needs some bolstering. Yeah. And it's been really helpful. And the other strategy I'm happy to share is so, so basic. It is just taking a walk but a specific kind of walk. Um, I read about it in the New York Times. They called it an awe walk. I was doing it before I saw the wow. title of it. And all it is, is getting outdoors and just taking a walk and trying to discover something that you've never seen before. Wow. You know, just something you could be in, yeah. in awe of. And so pretty basic, but it's been helping. That's great. I mean, basic, but powerful in so many ways too. Um, and I, I mean, so many things of what you mentioned really resonated, just practicing what you preached. I can think of so many instances where I verbalized some of those things in certain settings and then had people respond and say, oh, that really resonated with me when I heard you talk about just having to reset your expectations and know that you might be in a place just because of everything that was happening with the pandemic or otherwise that you might not be able to hit those goals and to be yeah. able to say that's fine and take a step back. So just to hear that you've been verbalizing some of those things as well. And then, as you mentioned, maintaining, that's huge. Because talking to so many people who had good intentions, but weren't able to maintain that, but then were able to do that through connecting with other people or having people hold them accountable. Um, so I think that's, that's, that's amazing. And it's funny because as you mentioned the walking, I even was thinking back, I shared this with you know people in my research groups too. The beginning of the pandemic, just being more specific about taking some daily walks or a few times a week and working out more and somehow that just kind of slipped away so that maintenance part definitely wasn't there but to you know be able to even verbalize that and have people say okay I also feel like I couldn't keep up and that helps them kind of move along but so many aspects of what you share I think are so, are so powerful simple and powerful so I know that people listening even hearing those six s's will be able to put some of those things um, in place. Yeah, and I feel like that successes, uh, resilient success really aligns very nicely with um, to remain healthy and whole, one yeah. must approach holistically. And so it kind of, you kind of think about the whole sort of realm of your life. Yeah. Um, because it, it can't, well, at least uh, for me, it can't be just one intervention or one strategy. I really need to think uh, holistically. This past uh, weekend, for example, um, I got went to an outdoor concert, an outdoor jazz concert. First concert I'd been to wow. in over three years. And um, it just really, mm. 
fed my soul. It was, it was wonderful to be back in community with people, yeah. but also outdoors. So yeah. You know. yeah, that's true. And I imagine that you probably felt the music in a different way too. I really did. I really yeah. did. Yeah. 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 That's so good. Well, I know that people are listening are going to be encouraged even by that already. And then what you mentioned holistically, I mean, as you were sharing those six steps, I was thinking there's a lot of discipline there, but mm-hmm. there's also aspects of hope and thinking about ourselves as whole beings, as you talked about the spiritual side, as you talked about the humor. Um, so we you know to be able to have those things that really pick us up and just, just give us life. So I mean, I'm impressed already. And I also appreciate <laughs> the honesty about saying that it's a work in progress. So I know it's not perfected. Yes, <laughs> it, it's definitely a work in progress. And I think that in the early stages of uh, the pandemic, mm-hmm. I mean, to be like fully transparent, I moving to working remotely. Mm-hmm. Um, what happened to me is what happened to so many people is that my workday really extended mm-hmm. um, without the commute on both ends, you know, I just jumped in earlier and I was like being so efficient and getting so much done and feeling really great about myself. Uh, (laughs) And then about maybe six, seven, eight months into that, um, really had to stop and observe what was happening and how I had really lost like some degree of work-life balance. And it's just really important. Um, to take note of that, to yeah. recognize when it's at, or at least to have someone check you. In my case, yeah. I did have someone, and that was, that was good. my spouse and my husband who said, maybe we're going to stop bringing the laptop to bed. <laughs> like, maybe that's... <laughs> and at that moment, we both said, let's mm. talk about what we've been doing and yeah. figure out how to rein this in and how to help support each other in that mm. regard. So That's so good. Yeah, to have someone who's willing to uh, to call you out, but then also to walk it out with you. At yes. the same time. So call you out, walk it out. I like yeah. that. Yeah, that's great. I'm going to use that. Yep. They feel free. <laughs> <laughs> I'll credit take, you. I'll uh, credit either, you. Either way, either way is fine. I'm going to, now that you brought it to my attention, I mentioned I'm going to use it as well. So <laughs> <laughs> it works, works for both of us. Good, good. But I mean, that that's really encouraging to hear too. Um, on that same note, because I mean, now that we're going to use this call it out, work it out, or moniker we just came up with, I'm curious within the college mental health program that you've been leading, one, if you could talk a little bit about that and then also talk about what you've had to do within that realm, within the pandemic, because all these things that you've mentioned that many of us have been struggling with, and especially if there's mental illness involved, how has that, I'm curious how that has also impacted the work that you're doing, but maybe just to start to give listeners a sense of what that program looks like. Sure, sure. Uh, So the college mental health program is, uh, somewhat of a unique model because we're a hospital-based college mm-hmm. mental health program, which mm-hmm. in itself is, is a little like atypical. Usually these programs are based within institutions of higher education. But the reason that we decided to develop the program was that although we are um, we work in a, a hospital setting, mm-hmm. so not situated directly on the college campus. Each year in our hospital system, we see college students from okay. over 200 different institutions of higher education wow. annually. Wow. And that's just an extraordinary statistic. I mean, it still blows my mind when I think about it, but I think it's helpful to sort of start with that because mm-hmm. it really is that statistic that drives the work that we do. Um, because it is such a unique um, sort of demographic. And so we um, focus on three areas. We deliver 
student-focused care, like strategies that really focus on the student identity and integrate those strategies into existing treatment models. And so we work with students like at all levels of care. Mm -hmm. And for your listeners, what, what that means specifically is wherever students might seek mental health treatment, whether it's at the inpatient level of care, which is the highest level of care, or in a day treatment setting where someone comes consecutively for a period mm -hmm. of weeks each day to do a little intensive outpatient work, residential, students in residential treatment who mm -hmm. are in treatment and living on the premises, and then outpatient. So we see students across all those levels of care presenting with the whole range of psychiatric diagnoses, but we specifically integrate a student focus into that work. Um, and because we see such a broad number of students, a large number of students from such a broad number of colleges and universities, not only do we deliver like clinical treatment work and do a lot of um, basically just trying to help folks think about um, how to support the mental health needs of students more effectively by mm -hmm. taking into consideration the fact that, this sounds so obvious, but that they are students. Yeah. And so why does yeah. that matter? Why is that so pivotal? Which typically does not always happen. So there's the oh. clinical piece. Okay. And then we do research. That's another sort of domain that we work in. And the easiest way to describe that is as we're developing new strategies and interventions, mm -hmm. things that we think are improving the mental health outcomes for the students with whom we're working, we're also evaluating that because mm, we don't good. wanna just guess at it yeah. or say we think this is working or we suspect this, we wanna have the evidence and yeah. document that evidence. And we've been able to do that over the years, mm. be able to show that when you integrate um, the this, this sort of focus on student identity into traditional models of care, like in our um, outpatient, or excuse me, our day treatment setting, that the students actually do better in terms of mm -hmm. their level of reducing levels of depression and anxiety when that sort of focus has been integrated into care. So mm -hmm. there's the treatment piece, there's the mm -hmm. research piece, like, is this working? Is it not? And if not, let's figure out what does. Yeah. And then a really big piece of the work, um, which is constantly evolving, centers on the fact that we see students from all over the country. And that piece is we engage colleges and universities. Mm. So we provide consultation services to schools and essentially like really strengthening the relationship between the work that we do and the work that they're doing and constantly putting our heads together to mm. figure out what's working for the students that we actually share, yeah. you know, and what's not working and what's needed. And so we develop new strategies, new interventions, new services in partnership and in collaborate new policies, mm. new wow. programming with colleges yeah. and universities all, all over the country. And so that's the sort of the full span of, of the work that we do. So we're not like um, our work isn't just situated where the hospital is in mm. Belmont, Massachusetts. We spend a lot of time visiting campuses and engaging with students and staff mm. and faculty and mental health providers on college campuses as well. Wow. That's, I mean, it sounds so comprehensive and so important on so many fronts, the way that you're really integrating across those pieces. Uh, again, meet people where they are, which we've talked a lot about on this podcast, but then also be informed by whether the things and the, the practices and <laughs> interventions are effective or not, but then also partnering with so many different entities as well. I'm curious as you've done that, because you've even talked about policy 
how did you make inroads into that? Because there's, it sounds like there's a level of trust that has to also develop there. One, to be able to listen and try and work together. And especially if that's going to move towards policy on campuses. So how, how has that piece come about for you to be, actually be effective? Dr. Addy, that is, like, you took the words out of, i like, are you reading my mind? Um, <laughs> the most important thing and the very first thing that we had to do in developing the program was create a level of trust. And because you can't just make this mm -hmm. stuff up. And as you know, you can't just show up on campuses as, you know, an expert in anything for, mm -hmm. for that matter. Um, <laughs> but you have to figure out like how to strengthen the relationship. And so we went about that in a very intentional way from the outset, do mm -hmm. a number of things, an example, a number of um, processes. One example is we created this um, range of programming that we titled McLean Hosts and then fill in the blank. And so mm, we okay. started um, reaching out to, and there are like 75 to 80 colleges and universities just within a, um, a close radius of the hospital. So it's a good mm. place to be able to, yeah. to build a college mental health program. Yeah. But we started reaching out and inviting folks from campus to visit our campus. Mm. And, and, and that was one way of strengthening the relationship, getting them from there, from where they sit on their mm -hmm. campus to where we, and our hospital setting also looks like a small college campus, mm -hmm. the way that it's situated. It's not like in a physical building, like a single right. structure, but really okay. spread out over mm -hmm. um, land. And we engaged them and asked them to think about when they came to visit us, what they wanted to explore about how we're working with students. Mm -hmm. So taking them through an abbreviated tour of some of the work that we were doing and just kind of building, getting to know each other, basically. Yeah. And we had what one would think of as like an exchange program, if you will, where then a reciprocal where we would visit the college mental mm -hmm. health program, CMHP for short, visits. So you know, MIT, um, McLean hosts MIT, and then um, the CMHT, this CMHP mm -hmm. visits MIT and so forth. And so just in doing that, like spending time in yeah. each other's like respective homes, that helped to build the trust. And we would ask schools also, um, when we learned the schools that we, like we didn't know before we started the program, how mm -hmm. many um, schools, students from how, the large number of schools that we were seeing. So once we had that information, we reached out to those folks and said, hey, do you know that each year we're seeing about, you know, 50 mm -hmm. of your students in yeah. our setting? Yeah. And would you be willing to get together and just talk about what's working on your campus um, to address the needs of those students? And also, from your perspective, mm -hmm. how are we doing? Yeah. in addressing the needs of your students and just kind of opening up, asking the question, often hearing great feedback, like, mm -hmm. oh, we really love working, but, but sometimes not. Yeah. Like this is what isn't working when yeah. our students come. And we really worked hard to elicit that honest feedback and yeah. said, just tell us because this is all in service of our students, yeah. right? And so without that information we can't get better exactly. and we have information that might be helpful for you in providing more effective support of your students um, from a mental health perspective and so really just building the trust in that was just an example that programming but we have 
kind of dozens of those yeah. strategies for building the trust. But I just love that you asked specifically about the term trust because that's absolutely um, what's required. And the yeah. main reason I know that is because I've been an administrator yeah. on a college campus. Mm -hmm. uh, and I know that um, colleges and universities, um, you know, can be really concerned and guarded about like what they're sharing and who they yeah. welcome in to collaborate with them. And so, yeah. Just and did you use that trust. in a sense? I mean, did you mention the roles that you had had before as you were walking? Yes. Or did you just yes. kind of let that? Okay. So you even. Actually did. And especially whenever mm. visiting the campuses, because um, it, I think just lowers everyone's anxiety. I mean, yeah. and you can see this like across in any discipline, right? If someone comes into your space and they've actually worked in yeah. your type of setting, yeah. you know, my job at the University of Michigan had oversight mm -hmm. of college student mental yeah. health. So when we're in, I'm engaging with colleges and universities and they hear that, there's mm -hmm. this almost like an exhaling, yeah. like, okay, <laughs> you get it. You know, it, yeah. like she gets it. We <laughs> yeah. don't have to explain, exactly. you know, because there's so many misconceptions mm -hmm. about some of the challenges that yeah. are um, that people are facing regarding college student uh, mental health. And so there's that yeah. piece of it. The other thing that I um, did in my administrative role previously when I worked at uh, the University of Michigan as associate dean was also a head oversight of critical incident management mm -hmm. and developing like an approach and a structure and a strategy for anticipating and responding to crises on campus. It's another element of campus life and college life that people don't speak about very easily, mm. um, you know, because a whole range of things uh, can happen that can be extremely challenging. So I think those two things combined yeah. um, really made and continue to make it easy for us mm. to engage with campus um, professionals. Yeah, I think that's really powerful. Just, I mean, so much of the foundational work that, and you spent the time doing that too. And I'm sure that that people sense that and knows that that time and investment is there. Um, and even as you were sharing just now, not to pivot too far off, but I'm curious, yeah. you know, as you talked about some of the preventative things and anticipating crises, did that, would you say that was a standard practice or was that something that was maybe more revolutionary sense? Just because from my, you know, limited scope, just seeing so many, of our schools, and we've done this ourselves as well, they are reactive rather than proactive. Um, so hearing you talk about that from earlier, I'm curious if that was just something that you all were doing that was ahead of the game in a sense, or if you've seen things change, are people more in that space? Because that seems like it, it has so many important implications for crises and also in terms of mental health as well and mental health crises that can come up. That is a brilliant question. And, and again, right at the heart of the matter, mm. um, when I, was recruited to uh, join the student life staff at the University of Mich Michigan. Mm. It was what you just asked was sort of the reason why. Mm. And this was now 20 years ago. Wow. So, That's, yeah. and, and it was specifically because this is often the case on many college campuses, they had in their case gone through a particularly challenging year with a number of, of crises, a full range of campus crises. And they had been doing a really excellent job of responding to, but 
felt like they didn't have an infrastructure for anticipating. And, and also didn't have like a um, like a strategic response. The things that were very clear, there were some phenomenal people on the ground, mm-hmm. um, like the vice president of student affairs, for example, mm-hmm. and, and deans. Um, and these are the people who sort of had in their heads what to do when a bad thing happens. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they were really, really good at it. And they would show up themselves to yeah, wherever wow. and whatever, any time of day or night. Mm-hmm. And what they experienced at that in that particular year was that there was a real spike in incidents and a broad mm-hmm. range of them, and that they couldn't catch their breath, that they felt like they were constantly putting out fires, this fire onto the next thing, onto the next thing. And that there was no time to really stop and um, think about really yeah. a structure and a, and a process. They had certain values and principles. The University of Michigan is a highly, um, highly oriented towards social justice. Mm-hmm. So an example would be that, you know, an approach to responding to crises would always be, by definition, multiculturally informed. That's mm-hmm. just... steeped into the fabric of, you know, how the division of student life works and thinks uh, Mm. at the organization. But how do you create that so that people can come into the system and understand what that looks like and document it and teach people so that, you know, and then create an opportunity for the university to be more proactive in anticipating Um, crises so that we're out of that reactive mode, right? And able, not always, because there will always be emergencies, Mm -hmm. but in some instances, you can look six months down the road and say, oh, this controversial speaker is coming to campus. What are the things we can do now to prepare our um, institution to um, respond to what is going to be a really challenging situation Mm -hmm. more effectively. And you can do that for a whole range of of crises that you know inevitably are going to happen at one point or another. So Mm -hmm. it really was about creating an infrastructure so people could get out of that reactive mode and feel more and be more proactive in anticipating mm-hmm. and more thoughtful in responding to. We had a whole range of, you know, th- anything could end up being a crisis on a college campus. One um, that s- sticks in my mind at the time was like the Asian tsunami that happened at that time. And you're talking about a large university system um, with a significant um international student population, that tsunami happened during a semester break. So many of our students were not on campus, but in their respective parts of the world. So just think about that, right? Like, how do you, how do you respond in a way that's Mm going to also be multiculturally um, responsive as Mm -hmm. well? So I think that was a long answer to your question but I could... <laughs> yeah I mean so powerful I mean so informed by all the different things oh and from, from a mental I'm sorry from a mental yeah, health perspective mm-hmm. we designed new strategies that now have become um, really standards of best practice like mm-hmm. creating a critical incident response team mm-hmm. or wow. what many schools refer to as like a behavior they have all, all these different names for yeah. it but specifically at the intersection of critical incidents mm-hmm. and mental health mm-hmm. a lot of the structures that 
we take for granted now mm -hmm. on college campuses, those kinds of teams and that team approach. Mm -hmm. um, we started those at wow. the University of Michigan. Wow. That's really encouraging to hear and to know the, the foundation of it as well and the ways that you all are so forward thinking. I mean, even as you're sharing now, I think still so many things that we, we can learn from that. Um, so again, just encouraged and not surprised to know that you had your hand in that and just the, the team there, it seems like was really intentional about that as well. Yeah. In a lot of ways, it also makes me think about the book that you just published, I guess about a year ago as well, because in some ways it seems like it has multiple components, both the preventative piece but then also it's informed by so many vignettes and, and stories. Um, so not that it's a reaction to, but in some ways it also feels like a response to things that have been happening for quite a while, even as you're trying to help create, you know, these more diverse and inclusive um, cultures and environments without, without doing things that will be temporary or just, just tokenize or all those other types of, many other types of words we could throw in there. But I was curious if you could just share a little bit about the impetus for writing the book in the first place. Uh, that's right. You just picked up on something else that's, that's so important for this work. And it's something that I carry with me in my mm. work at McLean in the College Mental Health Program and in the Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Office, and specifically in consulting to colleges and universities. When we engage in partnership with um, schools or any organization to, to sort of do the work, address sort of a, a crisis or a critical incident, what we ask, and this is really learned from the having been in the critical incident field, what we ask is like in our contract, let's figure out together what's gonna be sustainable, which is one of the themes of the book. Like yeah. how we're not gonna do a one and done, one and done doesn't work. Mm -hmm. So we won't partner with an organization. We don't want to perpetuate that tokenizing, mm -hmm. oh, we're throwing resources at this thing. We're focused on this issue, this crisis, you know, for this semester. And then guess what? Next semester, yeah. we're on to the next crisis. Like we're not doing that. Yeah. And, and we know how that happens. So let's figure out together how from the outset, what we put in place can be sustained over time. And we'll work in partnership to figure that out because it serves no one, least of all your students, to bring this intervention one year and have it you know, yeah. disappear the next. Uh, so yeah, you're so really a thread, a through line, if you will. And yeah. um, your question about the book, the impetus you asked about for mm -hmm. writing yeah, the book. Writing um, yeah. So many, so, so many things. Like um, as I think about for Dr. Lauren Wadsworth and myself, mm -hmm. there were a, a couple of things. One, we both have um, hold minoritized identities mm -hmm. within. Um, academic and medical settings, and we had our individual and shared experiences uh, that uh, sort of came together while working in a particular organization, and we were being called upon um, to serve as experts on different areas that, um, you know, my expertise, for example, within my system, I was recruited there specifically because of my expertise in college student mental health, and critical incident management. Now, it just so happens that I think that culturally responsive treatment should be integral to all treatment approaches, to all 
um, psychology programs, right? Like that should be, but that's not always the case. Um, yeah. So Lauren and I had some shared experiences and um, sort of being continuously sort of looked to as the expert in diversity, all things diversity, equity, inclusion related. And at a certain point, we developed so many workshops and talks and we just decided together, why don't we just document some of these things? Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. put some of this in writing as well as some of these experiences. And that was sort of one driving force. So sort of to save, so to be more efficient, right? Yeah. So we've <laughs> said this thing yeah. like so many <laughs> times, how about yeah. we put it committed to paper and we don't have to repeat it all again. But there were other, a couple of other driving um, forces. And one was, we were pretty, really obsessed with this idea of inclusivity mm -hmm. and helping organizations to think about how to move beyond what um, I refer to as diversity by the numbers mm -hmm. to yeah. actually thinking about what does an inclusive workplace look like? What are those practices? Mm -hmm. What are those behaviors and those skills? So that as we are so highly focused and motivated, especially in recent years, mm -hmm. to recruit diverse talent into our organizations, what can we do to ensure that we're prepared to really receive and welcome diverse talent, to ensure that mm -hmm. folks, when they show up in our um, organizations, that people feel safe or yes. relatively safe, that they feel valued, mm -hmm. um, that they feel um, heard and seen. So kind of really breaking it down into what does the practice of inclusivity look like? So that piece of it, which is, yeah. you know, kind of a lot of people, I mean, some really great thinkers in that space, of course. Uh, and then the other piece that really drove the structure of the book was how do we make this plain? We both happen to be clinical psychologists. We're also researchers and clinicians. We wanted to bring what we knew from the practice of psychology, like evidence-based yeah. strategies to the work, but yeah. like lose the jargon, right? So yeah. keep the science, but lose the jargon. That's, that's an impressive skill. It's so important. <laughs> it's so important, right? And yeah. it's a lifelong skill. I'm yeah. fascinated by that. Um, but we wanted to just make it plain so that yeah. folks didn't have to peel through layers and layers of, I mean, the, the data are there yeah. and the statistics and everything, but really not have to look up every other word to yeah. figure out what the heck are they talking about? We wanted yeah. to make it plain so that mm -hmm. people could pick it up and find the skills accessible. Mm -hmm. And like, oh, I could do that thing. Yeah. I could do that today. Yeah. And I don't have to be an expert in X, Y, and Z in order to do that and to practice that skill. So sort of those things combined really shaped the book and specifically mm -hmm. um, the structure and the content of the book. It's why we chose to begin with vignettes, real life stories, yeah. a way to make it plain, right? So that people could just read or hear a story and think, oh my goodness, I've seen that before, or I've yeah. experienced that, or I've said that. I can't tell you how mm -hmm. much feedback we've gotten from folks saying, I've seen myself in those vignettes wow. and not wow. always on the receiving end of identity related aggressions, mm -hmm. but sometimes as the perpetrator. Um, so 
connecting with the stories. And then that's why there's the vignette opening. And then the next part of the structure is kind of like, what's wrong with this picture? Yeah. Like, why is that programmatic? So just making it really plain, like, this is not okay. Here's yeah. why. If you don't already know, here's why. Mm -hmm. Lots of people don't know. And yeah. then what to do about it, which yeah. is a question that I think people have been really sort of pressed to answer in the past few years. Yes, in this time of racial reckoning and unrest, what do we do? What do we actually need to do? And so really practical, skills-based, evidence-driven, mm -hmm. but like I said, without the jargon. Yeah, that's really powerful on so many levels. And even that comment that you mentioned about some of the feedback that you're getting, people even realizing that they've maybe sometimes perpetuate things unknowingly. I mean, two things that stand out there. One, the fact that people were reading the book in the first place, which <laughs> makes me think they were open to it. But then also that may have given them a chance to see things in a way they may not have caught before and then to actually have practical things they can do to walk that out. So, I mean, I think that's so that's so impactful in so many different ways. Um, and this is one of the things I was curious about, like if people are actually seeing best practices come out of their reading of the book. And it sounds like you're definitely getting that feedback. Um, and I imagine that can have so many ripple effects, even as you talked about the theme of the book, trying to have these sustainable things that really change cultures, which is no small task uh, by any means. So just, just encouraging to hear that type of feedback that you've gotten already. Thank you. Um, we are both humbled and encouraged by the feedback and, um, and we're learning more every day of just from how organizations are utilizing the book, responding mm -hmm. to the book. One of the things we had hoped for in writing the book was that the, the work could be accessible like across industries. Yeah. Um, and but we had no idea, right? You, like you, you again hit the nail on the head when you said, "Well, I'm happy to hear that people are a reading the book because we certainly didn't know. Like, is anyone going to read this? Like, you don't know. Yeah. You just put yeah. this thing out there in the world, and you know, pray and hope that someone will resonate with it. Mm -hmm. um, so we are we are really encouraged and humbled by the range of industries that have mm. se been selecting the book as like their organization oh, wow. reads. And we're seeing that in like, you know, not surprisingly in, you know, academic settings mm -hmm. and in institutions of higher education. I mean, that's kind of where we lived. Yeah. Not that we expected that. We hoped that mm. for that, but it's being selected by secondary schools. Mm. And that's really encouraging yeah. by um, finance um, in financial spaces, law firms, wow. um, the American um, Society for Clinical Oncology. We just wow. we've been going on the on the book tour, much mm -hmm. of which has been virtual, but more recently now it's in person. Mm -hmm. uh, and so we're learning so much because these types of organizations, again across industries, theater, um, publishing. Wow are selecting the book as their community reads and then inviting us into this space. Research labs, um, the Thai Center at Yale wow. was one. Where, and so, but it's just such a different experience to go into the space where the entire workforce has been working with the book and then they have a range of questions and yeah. issues and responses. Like it's, it's been just so encouraging to see mm how people are leaning into the work and really like eager to take steps to mm. learn the practices. So 
So you asked about best practices. I feel like, yeah. you know, best practices are emerging all of the time mm. from, from our perspective, like through this process, we're learning mm. so much. We have a, a consulting company and we also have workshops that are aligned with the chapters in the book. So sometimes, not always, but organizations will invite us to do a book signing and a book talk, but then mm, also right. to deliver workshops. And oh, nice. the top, um, there, there are several, but the number, well, the top two requests are to learn how to do what we write about in the book as empowered versus oppressive listening. Mm. So that's emerging as a best practice. And then the other is not surprisingly, how to recognize, respond to, and reduce the rate of identity related aggressions, which mm -hmm. is the term that we yeah. use to refer to microaggressions. So primarily it switches like yeah. as time evolves, but right now those are the areas we're getting the most requests to come and help us yeah. think how to practice and learn these skills. Yeah, that does sound so encouraging. And I'm curious, you know, for our listeners too, especially those who might not have heard the identity-related aggressions as well. Can you elaborate a little bit on that and how, why that term and not microaggressions and where it has shifted um, in terms of your thinking and what you've seen from others as well? Yeah, um, and we're hearing lots about, you know, what people's language is, I think, mm -hmm. really yeah. important. And so the term microaggressions, there's been some, you know, that refers to sort of everyday slights, often unintentional, um, um, that it sort of um, targeting an individual, some aspect of an individual's mm -hmm. social, cultural identity. So maybe race, ethnicity, gender, sexual orientation, age, the, you know, the whole range, but yep. unintended everyday slights that um, create harm, right, mm -hmm. over time. And so that term that's commonly known as my, microaggressions, and there's been like a discussion, a lot of discourse over recent years about mm -hmm. the term micro, which actually means several different things when yeah. you look at the people who coined the term, but some people were... Um, sort of pushing back against the micro part, feeling or believing that it minimizes the damage. And as we were writing the book, we were thinking that, you know, when the term microaggression was first introduced, that it was probably necessary to use a term like that to mm -hmm. um, help people um, understand the harm and not feel like so guilty about it um, that they couldn't even delve into like why this is so problematic. But we yeah. feel like we're far enough in the field that it, we wanted to respond and eliminate the micro piece mm -hmm. and um, really um, focus instead on the impact, centering the identities of individuals with mar frequently with marginalized and minoritized yeah. identities who are on the receiving end of these everyday slights um, and, and insult. And so we took out the micro and replaced it with identity related mm -hmm. aggressions mm -hmm. to uh, do two things, sort of remove that piece about, make sure there's no misconception. Yeah. The impact of these behaviors um, is significant. It is major. It's really hurtful and harmful to people. So coined the term, I coined the term IRAs, mm -hmm. identity-related aggressions. Also, mm -hmm. 
sort of picking up on the financial term, helping people to remember that the impact isn't in the individual insult, but it is in the accumulation of these yep. everyday slights, um, that it accumulates over time. And the physical and the psychological impact on people really takes a toll, well-documented toll yeah. scientifically. And we really wanted to highlight that aspect of it. So. Yeah, I think that's so some. helpful. Yeah. And just really, as you, as you mentioned, things have shifted in time and just where we are, it sounds very appropriate to me and just really just helps center, as you mentioned too. So I'm hopeful that you know, you've probably gotten this feedback. That's really helping people grasp it in a different, different way and in a new way as well. Cause you know, even hearing, you know, high school students talk about some of these things, those conversations have definitely come up in terms of the aspects with the yeah. word micro. So again, yeah. not surprised yeah. that you're at the forefront and thinking ahead for many of us and helping us really frame these in a really appropriate way. So definitely appreciate that as well. Well, I don't know that I'm at the forefront, but just definitely like um, on the journey, mm. you know, mm. together, yeah. like it's just a shared journey, right? Yeah. So we're all learning from each other and we've yeah. been learning so much from mm -hmm. um like another uh, i'm thinking again about a best practice one best mm -hmm. practice mm -hmm. that's been emerging that that lauren and i um are learning a lot through this year of having been on the book tour is mm -hmm. how important it is in organizations companies groups to give people permission to name the ism we mm, refer to, uh, yeah. to like call a thing a thing. Yeah. And, you know, because historically we're really taught not to say these words and not to be able to talk about racism and sexism and um, transphobia and ageism and ableism, yeah. um, really taught not to say those things. We're more yeah. comfortable at this point naming sexism, I think, mm. as a society, yeah. but stuck almost to the point of paralysis when it comes to naming racism. And that in itself, I think, yeah. is interesting and helpful to think yeah. about. Mm -hmm. But we're seeing how important it is to give folks permission to name the ism and also to practice, to like practice, practice, practice. Like you've got mm. to practice these skills. Yeah. So we really are very intentional about creating spaces and opportunities for folks to hear themselves mm. saying the words mm. and hear wow. each other saying the words. And it's just like, wow, I said that. I yeah. said that thing just happened. It's not okay. It sounds like it really mm. comes from a place of historical racism. It's not okay. It's not who we want to be. Mm -hmm. So let's figure out how to address it moving forward. Yeah. I feel like that's been an emerging um, best practice. Yeah. I can go on if you oh, want to hear these are great. <laughs> these are great. Well, my, my curiosity is also peaking as well, because we touched on at the beginning of the episode, just having you share a little bit about just your own, I use the word balance loosely juggling, because as I'm hearing all the impressive and important work that you're doing, I'm just curious how you have that cadence for yourself, as you even talked about, you know, your, and your partner, just making sure. Do you have time to pause? And how are you? How are you in that aspect of the journey? As much as you're you're willing to share, and again, this is partially a selfish question because I get that question a lot <laughs> myself, and I'm always thinking about just with the many different roles and initiatives and responsibilities that I have. So I will I will divulge that there is some personal uh, investment in the question as well. But no, curious for, that, that, for that with our listeners. <laughs> so, like full disclosure, I mean in. Uh, this idea of, I, I talked about that we're really obsessed with this notion of um, um, 
you know, sort of operationalizing inclusivity and belonging, but just as important is this notion of sustainability. Mm-hmm. And um, so as we were talking about earlier, like putting forth like an approach or a practice and intervention, but ensuring that the thing that you're doing, whatever that is, can be there for the long haul. Mm. And that's been definitely a through line. It's a, a question that I've, I think about um, since you know, becoming diversity, equity, inclusion officer, it's really mm. a, like a guiding approach for how we do the work. In fact, even our core staff, as we're thinking about a solution or a response to something or a new program, we always routinely ask ourselves, is this thing sustainable mm. for ourselves like, yeah. and for the organization? And if it's not, if, it, if we can't introduce it today and figure out how it's going to still be a thing in six months, in mm. six years, then we're not going to do it mm. um, because this really requires being in it for the long haul. And um, so just that one practice certainly has has helped um, maintain like my own ability to stay in the work, like to continue to show up. Um, and another sort of principle, it's it's not just like kind of talking about it and it's going from teaching and talking about, but also to figuring out how to practice it. Mm -hmm. But I love this idea of shared responsibility Mm -hmm. for doing the work. And it truly has made it possible for me to like still be like a social justice activist. Mm -hmm. Um, So when I assumed the role of the first diversity, equity, inclusion officer for McLean, what we decided at the outset was mm. we're going to do this, but we're going to do it with a model of shared responsibility. Mm, and good. what what that means is it's not going to be my job and it's not going to be the, the job of my or the DEIO office. Mm. Like the work isn't going to be marginalized. It isn't going to be um, in parallel to that. It has to be integrated and that the whole organization, every member of the organization needs to be challenged to think about what their role is yeah. in promoting diversity. So really integrating mm. it into, and it sounds like such a basic thing, like, yeah, of course, shared responsibility. We're all responsible, but actually creating culture shift yeah. so that people yeah. feel like, okay, I want to own responsibility for doing better, but then how do I do it? And creating mm-hmm. a structure and a system for doing that has absolutely been mm. a personal and professional lifesaver. Like had I not done that, I'd have burned out mm. after year one. Mm. Um, and that's not to say, as I mentioned at the outset, it is a work in progress. Yeah. I am definitely a work in progress. <laughs> and in that first year, I overextended myself mm. in dozens of ways. Um, and then another practice for sustaining has been like creating like a self-care partners. And sometimes at the end of the week in certain, uh, groups, uh, at work, we'll end the week with what our commitment to self-care, mm. one self-care nice. activity 
is going to be over the weekend. And then wow. we begin the week by reporting back wow. on what great. that thing is. Yeah. We also, I mentioned we do checkouts. One thing that we do as part of our checkout in within our multicultural psychology consultation team, our check-in. Did I say checkout? We check yeah, in. Check yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Where they came from, but <coughs> For our check-ins, I know, I know, let's not, let's not, let's not. When we check in, Mm. we will also rate level of burnout. And we do that Mm, routinely on a scale of one to five, with five being the highest level Mm. routinely. And it's just been a really nice practice, one, to sort of, because it makes us, me specifically, pause and think, how am I doing? Yeah. And and, and integrating that practice, you know, it's part of the agenda. It's not something that's hit or miss. We do it like every single time we meet, what's the level of burnout? Mm. And then we ask like, um, if the level is three or higher, is there something you need mm. from the group or the organization? Um, sometimes there is. Sometimes folks will say, yeah, I need problem solving around this one thing, mm-hmm. or I need support on this. And other times people mm-hmm. will say, no, it just helped to be able to share that my burnout level is like creeping up there. Yeah. Um, another practice that's really helped sort of to keep me whole and showing up in the work is one that we also instituted as part of that multicultural psychology consultation team. And mm-hmm. when we check in, we report our level of burnout, but we also report on um, upstander moments mm. that we have observed in the prior week, mm-hmm. both um, like seized, like upstander moments where either you or you witness someone else really lean in mm. and be effective as an upstander in responding to an identity related question. Mm. And we also report on missed opportunities. Wow. And sometimes okay. those missed opportunities will be opportunities that we ourselves like this happened and I really missed the moment and Mm. I want to like name that and that's been surprisingly very um rejuvenating often what Mm. happens in the group is that people will get acknowledged for Mm. upstander moments that they didn't even realize were so impactful and you know so it's really positively reinforcing the work yeah, there's so many good practical tips in there too. And again, I just love the way that it's it's balanced between the times when things have gone well and the times where there's still room for growth. And then just even creating the space, like with the check-ins, to have an actionable item or for people just to say that, oh, that was just helpful, just sharing that. So, I mean, that's so that's yeah. so encouraging, so practical in so many ways. I think this is one, again, one of those episodes that people are going to have to listen to more than once to really catch all these great tips and hopefully to be even, even able to... Uh, to purchase the book, to read it. And it's just, it's really encouraging just to hear. I mean, I know this is a foundation of years that none of these things just popped up at any specific point in time, but you've really laid a foundation with the different roles that you've had with your career experiences, with your life experiences. And I'm just grateful for the ways that you've shared that with our listeners and the ways that you're sharing that across so many different realms, as you mentioned, institutions and environments and educational systems. So just really encouraging to hear what you're doing. And I'm grateful that I've been able to have you here to share that with our listeners as well. And as I mentioned at the onset, I've been able to glean from it as well. And this definitely impacted my thinking and how we've even gone about things on this Addy Hour podcast. So definitely appreciate you being here. Any last words of, you've shared so much already, but any last words of wisdom or things that you want to leave our listeners with in particular? Yeah, 
Thank you. Well, first of all, thank you for having me. I always love our, our conversations and I was really looking forward and I just love what you're doing in this space in addition to all of the other spaces in which you are <laughs> like so, such an inspiration. Um, I guess I would just leave with a reminder to remember to do your own personal resilience success scan, you know, as a, as a strategy to sort of identify where um, you might need to do um, a little bit of additional work to sort of keep yourself in the work uh, for the for the long haul. That's great. That's it, great. I have to keep saying it every time I yeah. say it. It helps me too yeah. because then I remember. Oh yeah, I'm supposed to be practicing that. Yeah, I think that's great. I mean, so honest too. Just I, that that helps all of us. Just to know that it's a practice that even you have to continue to remind yourself about. Um, and again, just I know this the people are taking so much in just listening to this. So definitely appreciate you being here on the Adiaro podcast. Definitely appreciate the work that you're continuing to do and appreciate, you know, the ways that you've mentored me in this journey as well. So Dr. Pinder Amaker, thank you again for joining the Adiaro podcast and for all that you're doing. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Addy. Thank you for having me.